Do you got any joy yet? Come on, this is, this is week five of Joyful Hope. And uh, we've been in the book of Philippians. Last week was Joy at the Table. Come on, my wife, she slayed it. That was really good. And uh, well, I'm gonna come in here and back clean up today. So we're going Philippians 4. And uh, I could have actually stayed in Philippians a lot longer. We could have made this easily an eight-week series. But uh, So we're going to walk through Philippians 4 today and uh, really just kind of a verse-by-verse exposition. And uh, we're going to start in verse 4. So let's go. Let's take it to the top. Verse 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. So we end how we started with joy. Remember, Philippians is probably the most joy-filled book in all of the scriptures. And I, I, Christian joy is, is it's really about a buoyancy or, or a resiliency. It's, it's a deep down, something deep within you that even though you get knocked down, even though you face trials, even though you face hard times, Christian joy is what makes you buoyant and what keeps bringing you back, even when everybody counted you out. Now, some people think the opposite of joy is sorrow or the opposite of joy is sadness. And that's actually not true because Paul in Philippians and in other places places, he demonstrates that you can actually simultaneously have sorrow and joy. He says, uh, he says, we are full of sorrow yet rejoicing. So the opposite of joy is not sadness or sorrow. Uh, actually, the opposite of joy is hopelessness. This is what Tim Keller says. So hopelessness or despair, that's what the opposite of joy is. So we are not people without hope. Right? This is, we're joyful hope, hope for all people. This is what we've been all about this year. So, even if our circumstances and our situations are not good, uh, it, it doesn't determine our joy because Paul says, he doesn't say, rejoice in your circumstances, rejoice in your bank account, rejoice in your marriage, rejoice in. No, no, no. All of that can be not going so hot. <laughs> he says, rejoice in the Lord. And the Lord is always at high noon, okay? The Lord is not having, the Lord never has a bad day. He doesn't have a bad day. He's always on top of his game. So we can rejoice in the Lord, even in hard times. Paul says it like this elsewhere. Listen to the buoyancy. Listen to the resiliency he has. He tells the Corinthians, he says, we're hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. I mean, that sounds like a locker room pep talk if I ever heard one. Like, that should have been on Remember the Titans, like, at halftime. Like, that's like, I'm like, woo, let's go. You know, there is a, a resiliency in Christian joy. It, what's, it gives us strength. It makes us buoyant. And that's what we've been talking about. We need that joy. And so there's really four areas in life that Paul is going to talk about in chapter 4 here. He's going to talk about joy, joyful prayer, joyful thinking, joyful living. And the last one at the end of the chapter is joyful giving. Those are four areas that I see in this text today. So let's, uh, let's start in verse 6. Joyful prayer. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. 
let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Man, that is, write it on a card, write it on your bathroom mirror. This is one that you need to memorize and come back to it over and over again. The scripture doesn't say make your requests known to God and he'll make all your wildest dreams come true. It doesn't even say anything about your prayers being answered. It, it, the promise is not every prayer gets answered. The promise is when you pray, you will have peace. When you pray, you'll have the peace of God. What a great, great, great gift from God. Now, biblical peace, it's important that we understand biblical peace because biblical peace is not the absence of chaos. Biblical peace is peace in the midst of chaos. It's that in the day of trouble, in the day of evil, you are not moved. I heard a story about uh, two painters who were asked to draw a picture of peace. The first painter draws a, 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 a lovely meadow with a flowing brook and a, and a sheep laying down in green pastures and a shepherd just there next to the sheep, very blissful, very, uh, you know, just very peaceful, if you will. And this was his picture of peace. Uh, the other painter drew a much more interesting painting. He drew a picture of a, a stormy sea, a massive wave battering up against a ship and, 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 and uh, waves crashing onto rocks. And, and it was just chaos. And then in the middle of all this chaos, there's one little ray of light that comes through the clouds. And it comes down and it's beaming and it's perched uh, right on a bird. It sits right on a little bird, and this little bird is singing. And this painter said, this is what peace is. And I think that painter got peace right, because even though the storm was raging, even though the storm was real, here is this little bird singing in the midst of the chaos. That is peace. That's what God wants to bring you. Peace is a weapon. And Paul said, if you want this kind of peace, you know what you got to do? You got to pray. He said, pray about everything. Now, I know you pray, but my question is, do you pray about some things or do you pray about all things? Do you pray about everything in your life? Or do you keep some things to yourself and ask God to touch other things? I love this quote from Marcus Bachmuel. He says, worry can be the delayed symptom of a practical atheism. That's so good. Worry can be the delayed symptom of a practical atheism that grows from persistent neglect of prayer and an addictive belief in self-sufficiency. Whoo, that's good. He's saying worry comes when we're not praying. Worry comes and overtakes us when we're not focused on one thing and making God the center of our lives. He says that is a recipe for worry. But Paul gives us the recipe for peace. Recently, I was hanging out uh, with uh, Cindy here at church. You know, she's our church clerk, but she's also our resident chef. She cooks for us all the time. And this week, I was, I wanted, I was having a hankering for cabbage soup. And I said, Cindy, if I buy all the ingredients, it was, it was on like Tuesday afternoon. I said, Cindy, I'll buy all the ingredients, but I want you to teach me how to make the best cabbage soup. So I went and got it and uh, she taught me how to make cabbage soup and I mean it was good. She showed me the recipe for cabbage soup. I want to give you the recipe for peace soup. You ready for some peace soup? Here it comes. Paul gives us four 
words for prayer here. He uses them back to back to back. He says, uh, he talks about prayers, and then he talks about uh, requests, and then he talks about thanksgivings. These are all separate words for prayer in the text, okay? And so let's start. He says, in everything uh, that you should pray. And that word is prosuke in the Greek. The word pray is prosuke in the Greek. This is the most common word used for prayer in all of the New Testament. And uh, although it's common, it doesn't mean it's generic. It actually has a really deep meaning. Rick Renner does a good job describing this prayer. He calls prayer uh, prosuke, the prayer of consecration, because it's made up of two words. The first is pros, the second is uke. Okay, and you put it together, it's prosuke. The first word pros carries the meaning of something close, something up front, something that's eye to eye, something that's intimate. It means that someone is really in your personal space, eye to ball, eyeball to eyeball, face to face, mouth to mouth. And so pros is about coming near and drawing near. And this is what prayer is. Prayer is drawing near to the living God. It's encountering God. It's getting close. The second word, UK, it has to do with a vow, a promise. It carries with it the idea that uh, someone would have a need in their life, and if they would make a vow or a promise to God in exchange for an answer. You know, Hannah's a great example of this in the Old Testament. Remember when she's barren and she's unable to have a child, she tells God specifically, if you give me a son, I vow to give him back to you. There was a, there was a vow there, and and Hannah holds to her promise, right? She does give her son back to the Lord. So put these two ideas together. And it, it prosuke means this idea of coming close and drawing near to God to make an exchange. You draw near and you make a decision to surrender control of your life. We freely give our lives, our vows to God. And we exchange uh, God for his life. All of our weaknesses for his strength, all of our gifts and skills, we lay those down and we receive his power, his presence, his goodness. So prayer is a drawing near to God and surrendering to him. And then he says, he says not only your prayers, but also your supplications. A supplication. What is a supplication? In Greek, it's the word dasis. And dasis depicts a person who has some type of lack in their life and because of this lack, they plead strongly for an unmet need. This is someone who has an awareness of how much they lack, and they're humble, and they pray passionately. So if you go and you see this word in the King James Version, dasis, it's, it's sometimes translated to beseech or to beg or to earnestly appeal. It means to cry out. This is, this is when you've lost all pride, you've lost all uh, you know, you don't care about what you look like. All you care about is getting your need met. And this is, you know, this is a, a supplication is a prayer from your gut. It's an ugly prayer. It's an ugly cry. You ever seen someone ugly cry or ugly pray? They don't care about what's going on around them. They're so desperate for God to move in their life that they cry out from their guts. And if you read the scriptures, God gets moved by gutsy prayers like this. The Bible talks about blind Bartimaeus. Jesus was passing by blind Bartimaeus, had no reason to stop. But blind Bartimaeus says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He cries out 
And because he cries out, Jesus stops. Jesus stood still and he says, what do you want? And Bartimaeus said, I want to be made well. The indication is in the text. If Bartimaeus had not cried out, Jesus would have kept going by and he would have never gotten his answer to prayer. Karl Barth says this, prayer causes God to do things that otherwise God wouldn't do. I'm telling you, there is that when God, when you cry out, you get the attention of heaven. Someone who's drawn near to God, they've surrendered their life. When that type of person cries out, oh, heaven hears them. Paul says, when you, when you cry out, when you draw near, he says, let it be with thanksgiving. This is the Greek word eucharisto. It is, it is a, it is a, a, a an overflowing being filled, it's just the, you, the, the good things of God just spill out from you. Someone who's thankful, it's like a river that they can't contain with them. It just spills out in their response to the good things of God. They're thankful. You know what? The real test of faith is not whether you get what you want from God, but how you act once you do get what you ask for. How do you treat God after he answers your prayer? So many times we just run on with our life and we don't stop to thank him. But Paul says, listen, there's something powerful about thanksgiving. There's something powerful. When you make your request known to God, throw in a little bit of thanksgiving with it and see if the peace doesn't just pour out on you. Thanksgiving. The last one he says, in making all your requests known to God. The word request in the Greek is etemata. An etemata, a request, is a petition, a specific, exact, explicit, precise, detailed request. This is so important. Rick Renner says this, If we can be confident that God hears us, regardless of what we ask or what physical or tangible need we may want him to meet for us, we can be sure that we will have a yes to the specific, exact, explicit, detailed requests that we desire of him. What am I telling you? When you come to God, don't pray generalities. Pray specific. Pray details. Ask God specific. You know, prayer, if it's going to be effective, then it has to be selective. In other words, you don't just you don't do a shotgun approach to prayer where you try to get No, prayer is a targeted a rifle bullet that hits the target when we pray specific requests to God. And, and when I say pray specific bold requests, I'm not talking about, oh God, give me a million dollars. Oh God, let me win the lottery. I'm not talking about that. I'm, Jesus said, if my words abide in you and you abide in me, you can ask anything in my name and the Father will give it to you. You see, the words of God, when they abide in you, and you're praying a prayer that you know, oh, this is the will of God. You can have such confidence. You can have such boldness to come before uh, the throne of God and to pray those prayers. I don't know if you've ever experienced that where you know, oh, I know God wants this. And I'm going to pray for it. And I'm going to partner with God and see it happen. Those type of prayers, you can take it to the bank. It is good. Paul says, when you pray like this, oh, you can be guaranteed that peace is coming your way. You know, the, th the, the story in the Bible that so like illustrates this to me is the story of Daniel. Daniel is a man of prayer, right? Do you know why Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den? It's because he's a man of prayer. 
the, uh, the, the emperor, the king had made an edict, said no one's allowed to pray in any other name or to any other God except me, the emperor. And you know what Daniel did? He didn't listen. The Bible says he went up to his room like he did every day, three times a day, and he kneels down and he prays. And because of that, he gets thrown, the Bible says, into a den of lions. <laughs> he gets thrown into a den of lions. But you want to know, go back and read Daniel. You know what's interesting? Daniel, when they come in and find Daniel the next day, the lions had not destroyed him. Daniel sleeps through the night in a den of lions. <laughs> Talk about peace. Daniel has such peace that in the lion's den he sleeps. But you know who doesn't sleep in the story? The wicked king who made the edict that no one is allowed to pray. The Bible says that he was so worried and he stayed up all night thinking of Daniel. He was so worried about Daniel, he stayed up all night and he couldn't sleep. Look, Daniel prays, he sleeps. The other man has no peace and he's got worry and anxiety. When you bring all of your requests to the Lord, you may not get everything you want, but you will get Peace. It's a promise of God. Hang on to it. Joyful prayer. Now, joyful thinking. Philippians 4, 8 through 9 says, Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and heard and seen from me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. One of my uh, favorite things about this, what, what Paul says, Paul doesn't just say, hey, stop worrying. Hey, don't worry. Whatever you do, don't worry. He says, he doesn't say just don't worry, but the worry is to be replaced with prayer. Paul doesn't say don't think bad thoughts. He says, think good thoughts. Here's what I'm saying. God doesn't tell us just to stop doing things because just stopping doing things doesn't work. You might stop for a little while, but you're going to go back to those things. Whatever you try to want to stop doing, you actually have to fill it with the good thing. You can't just stop doing something. You've got to pursue something else. He doesn't say, stop worrying. He says, pray instead. He doesn't say, don't think about bad things. He says, no, think about good things. Fill your mind with good things. You know, uh, you, you've got you've to, whatever's lovely and honorable and pleasing. He gives six characteristics there. But he is saying really how important thinking is. Have you ever stopped to think about what you think about? Have you ever stopped to think about what's playing in your head over and over again? Like a track? You know, right now I'm uh, like it hate it, whatever. Right now, I'm in a massive country music kick. I don't know why. I have been listening to Luke Combs. Like, Luke Combs is real country, okay? And it's like an earworm. It's a tr I can't get Luke Combs' voice out of my head. I just hear it all day long. Do you? I don't know if that's ever happened to you. A track gets stuck in your head, and you hear it all day long, and these things are just playing in your head. And uh, so all of us have running tracks going in our mind. I don't know what your track is in your mind. Maybe someone said something to you years ago and it affected you in such a way that you can't get that thought out of your head. Or someone made a comment about you and it stuck with you. Or maybe you're so bitter at someone and, and your whole life is 
framed around the bitterness of you. You, you can't, even though that person hurts you so bad, you think about them every day. And, and so this is ruining your life because you're thinking about the bad things that have happened to you. You're thinking about the bad things that have been said about you. There's a soundtrack that plays in your head all day long. And Paul is saying, you actually have the power to press stop and to put in a new soundtrack. You actually can change the song. You actually don't have to just listen to that junk that's in your head all day. You can think about what you're going to think about. And the, the trick is you got to quit listening to yourself and you got to start talking to yourself. Quit listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. It's in the Psalms. The psalmists do it all the time. They'll say things like, oh, why are you so cast down, oh, my soul? David's talking to himself. He's saying, soul, what's wrong with you today? Why are you so negative today? Put your trust in the Lord. Hey, soul, let's sing about the good things of God. Let's sing about God and who he is and what he's. I know I'm in this cave running away from my enemies, but I'm going to sing about God and talk about God. You got to quit listening to yourself and you got to start talking to yourself. Do you know how powerful, even just human, the, the human mind is so powerful, even f, not just for believers, even unbelievers. God gave us a mind. I heard something this week. It floored me. You know, in 2008, uh, Michael Phelps in the Beijing Olympics, you know, he's the most decorated athlete of all time uh, for Olympics. Maybe his most impressive win happened in the 200 meter men's butterfly. Do you know that? when he jumped off the platform into the pool, the 200 meters butterfly, that his goggles messed up and they filled up with water. Filled up with water. He actually swam the entire race blind. He could not see a thing. He still won a gold medal and he still set a world record blind. You want to know how he did it? Because since at a young age, at a young age, his coach taught him to visualize every race. Every night before he goes to bed and every day before he hops in that pool to race, he actually, in his mind, he uses his mind, he visualizes the pool, he visualizes every stroke he's gonna take. And in that 2008, when he had, when the goggles came off and he's swimming blind, Michael Phelps didn't freak out. Why? Because he'd already swam that race a thousand times in his mind. And he falls back to what his mind already knows, and he wins the race. His, what his, his coach would tell him, play the tape, play the tape. And this is what he meant. He meant play, uh, rework in your mind, uh, the, the, play the video of you swimming through that pool. And then he would say, play the tape, play the tape, visualize what you're doing. And that's exactly what he did. He visualized his win. And, and, and God, Paul, in here in the scriptures, he's saying, play the tape. Play the tape. Play the, the good things, the honorable things. Why do you use your imagination to imagine the worst things possible? What if you use the imagination, the thoughts that God gave you? You don't have to be captive to them. Start thinking good thoughts. Replace lies with truth. Play the tape. Oh, what is the tape? It's the Word of God. you got to fill your mind with it. you got to fill your mind with the good things of God and go over it and over it and over it until it literally materializes and changes on the outside. Joyful thinking, it will change your life. Number three, joyful living. Philippians 4, 10 through 13, it says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at great length you have, you have revived your concern for me. 
You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Joyful living. You want to know what the secret to joyful living is? Paul says it right here. He says, I have learned the power of contentment. I have learned how to be content. Some days I'm high. Some days I've got abundance. Some days I'm overflowing. All my needs are met plus some. And then there's other days where I don't got much. But he said, what I've learned is how to be joyful in all of it through the power of contentment. Now, I think you have to remember what he says. I have learned. I have learned. You know what that means? Contentment's not automatic. It's not automatic. Sometimes in the Christian walk, we think that we should just get things instantly, especially us charismatics. We think someone should just wave their hand over us sometimes and instantly whatever we're struggling with should go away. And sometimes it does, but not always. The Bible, when it talks about the Christian walk, it often uses imagery of war. So the Christian life is like a war. This is a battle you're in. And you can't just snap your fingers and end a war unless you're Thanos and you have all the infinity stones. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It, no, this is a fight. This is a battle. It's constant. And contentment is going to be one of the biggest things we're fighting for in our lives. Learning that your source and resource is the Lord. So many people, they, they pray about something. And when it doesn't happen instantly, they think God should just snap their fingers. And I prayed for it. Why hasn't God done it? And, and we just stop praying. And we don't ask God. And we pray for it once. And we think, oh, well, I, I tried to think right. I tried to pray and see my anxiety go away. I prayed once and I still was worried. And, and you're like, well, what in the world? No, this is a fight. This is something you got to continue in. Remember Paul's thorn in the flesh? You read the book of Romans, you'll see Paul prays. He says he prayed three times. I'm sorry, read Corinthians. Paul prayed three times that God would remove something from his life. He called it a thorn in the flesh. We don't really know what that is. I personally believe it was something to do with his eyes. He had a problem with his eyes, and he probably was asking God to heal his eyes. I mean, why not? He could raise the dead. Why couldn't God heal his eyes? And so he says he prayed and asked God three times to heal his eyes, but God said, stop praying about it. Hey, can I give you, let me give you some advice here. Until God tells you to quit praying about something, I wouldn't stop praying about it. I'd pray about it and I'd pray about it and I'd pray about it until I saw God move or I heard God say, this isn't gonna happen or stop, Chad, quit praying about it. We give up too easily because we think it should happen instantly. But this is how you have contentment. See, right there, Paul said he either prayed for a miracle, the miracle didn't happen, but God said, no, I've got a purpose for the thorn in the flesh, Paul. He said, Paul, I'm using that thorn in your flesh. It's making you weak. And when, you, and when you're weak, that's when I can be strong in your life because you're gonna cry out to me. So God allowed the suffering in Paul's life because it was gonna cause Paul to cry out to God and God was ultimately gonna use that in Paul's life. So God 
allowed it. How do we have contentment in life? We believe one or two things. Number one, we believe God can miraculously change our situation. God can. He can't instantly change your situation. If he wanted to, he's God. And, 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 and for Paul, I believe that was physical healing. That's one way to have contentment. The other way is you, you trust in the providence of God. Providence means you believe that for whatever reason, I'm not saying God does bad things to us, but you believe that somehow God can work out. Whatever bad thing has happened, God can somehow make that work towards his plan for your life and more importantly for his plan for the kingdom. This is, this is belief in God's providence. This is you believe that somehow God is doing something. It, it's, it's like the story of Joseph. Joseph, how in the world? At the end of his, at the, not at the end of his life, really in the middle of his life, Joseph is able to look at his brothers, his brothers that had sold him into slavery, his brothers that were the reason for all his hardships in his life. He had been in, he had lost his, he never saw his mother again. He never saw, he, he almost never saw his father again. He lost everything. He ends up in prison for a few years. But somehow he's able to look at his brothers and say, what you meant for harm, God meant for good. God brought me here to save the lives of you and many others. How do you have that perspective? It's when you trust in God's providence. If God is allowing this in my life, I'm going to trust somehow that he's got a plan for it and he's going to make it work to the good. This is how we have contentment. God can change my situation instantly or if something I'm walking through I don't like, I don't want, somehow God's going to use it. Either way, I'm going to trust God. Whether I have much or I have little, I'm trusting in the providence of God. Somehow God will make it good. Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's joyful living. Last, joyful giving, joyful giving. Philippians 4, 14 through 20 says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves, you know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into a partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Joy and giving. Now, you know, in church, we're, we're, we've grown hesitant to talk about giving because there's been so much scandal in evangelical churches over the past few years concerning money. And so people think, oh, pastors, they're just out to get my money. Listen, we're not out for your money. We're out for your whole life. I don't want your money. I want your whole life. Not me. Jesus wants your whole life. And you know what? Money is a big part of life. And Jesus talks about money a lot. Money is a discipleship issue. If Jesus hasn't touched your money yet, then Jesus really hasn't touched your heart. 
because there is a joy. Oh, you want to be you want to be not joyful? You want to be scared and worried about money all the time? Don't be a giver. Don't be a giver. You'll be constantly worried about your money. Oh, but when you learn that when you give, when you open your hand and you learn that God is the one who supplies all my needs. See, when you give, what you're saying is, Lord, I trust you. And when you can trust God with your money, it will bring great peace in your life. And I don't know how God does it. God always finds a way. I, I Listen, I've been a tither since I was uh, 10 years old, okay, or, or less. Out of the womb, I was a tither. It was taught to me as a kid. I've always given 10% and offerings over the 10%. And you know what? I don't, there, I don't regret it for one day, not for a single bit. God has taken care of me in more ways than I can even count. Why? Because he will supply all of my needs. When you learn sacrificial giving, when you learn how to open your hand, you will see how God will provide for your needs. Paul is thanking the Philippians because the Philippians, they gave sacrificially for the mission. You want to know something? Every move of God that's ever happened, ever, there's always sacrificial giving tied to it. Always. Go back and read at the beginning of Acts, sacrificial giving. The temple when it was made, sacrificial giving. In history, great revivals, sacrificial giving. There's always someone holding the rope so the movement can go forward. The gospel needs rope holders. The gospel needs people who are willing to give sacrificially and play their part. There's a book by a guy named John Reinhardt. It's called Gospel Patrons, and he makes this he makes this case that behind every great move of God, behind the scenes, there's gospel patrons. You can go back to Jesus, the Son of God. How did Jesus accomplish all that he accomplished? Yes, he was Jesus. Yes, he was the Son of God. But do you know that there was a group of women that took care of Jesus and his disciples' financial needs? They gave sacrificially. And because of that, Jesus was able to do his work. Paul was able to do his work because of the Philippians. Gospel patrons. William Wilberforce, who got, who got uh, slavery eradicated from Britain. You know what? He had a team of people behind him. They had a 30-year war chest they were giving to back Wilberforce to defeat slavery in their day. William Tyndale, his, uh, his, his funding for translating the Bible, the reason we have English Bibles today is because uh, a successful cloth merchant gave to William Tyndale in the 1500s so he could translate the Bible. The great, uh, the great awakenings that happened here in America. George Whitfield touched as many as 10 million people with his preaching. There was a, a wealthy woman named Lady Huntington who sold her jewelry and funded George Whitfield's his, his, his mission. Look, there's always a gospel patron. There's always somebody giving sacrificially so the gospel can go forth. And if we really want to see God move in our day, if we want to see a movement, it's going to take sacrificial giving. Let me tell you something. The Crossing Church, we were started in 1949 and we're still here and we're still going. And God is moving and people's lives are being changed. You want to know why? Because from the very beginning, oh, there's been rope holders. There's been people who give. There's been people who give sacrificially. Oh, and they don't regret it one bit. I hear from the givers in the church and they just talk about how much joy they have in giving and how they love to give and how they don't get how people don't get giving. Oh man, if I could let them come up here and share testimonies, they could talk for days about God has provided for them over and over and over again. The question is, do you trust him? If 
Jesus hasn't touched your pocketbook yet, if Jesus hasn't touched your cash app account yet or your bank account yet, I don't know how much you really trust him. Why don't you test him? The Bible says you can test God and give him. Just test him. Just try it. Just see what happens. See if joy doesn't come to your heart. Oh, the Father loves a joyful giver. He loves a joyful giver. Why? Because he's a joyful giver. He gives to us. What a blessing it has been to walk through the book of Philippians with you. There's so much joy when we pray, when we think on good things, when we find contentment in Jesus, and when we learn to be givers. Father, I pray for your people today. I pray they would go with joy, that you would let us be people of great joy, even though we have sorrows and sadness. We're pressed down, but we're not crushed. Oh, Lord, we're persecuted, uh, but we're not abandoned. We're not left alone. You're with us. I thank you for great joy. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. Hey, church, I love you. Go smile at somebody. Go celebrate. Go feast. It's Sunday afternoon. Go have some joy. We'll see you next week at 10 o'clock.